Good to be with you again this morning. I greet you in the name of Jesus. Just for a brief introduction or a brief review from last evening. I think most of you were here. A few of you weren't. It's good to see some new faces this morning. But Peter told the crowds at Pentecost, Pentecost, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so last evening we looked at the importance of each of us individually being filled with the Spirit of God and being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I said that Spirit-filled individuals will then form a community. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. And that community is unified not because they share the last name, the same occupation, or the same hobbies, but rather a truly unified church is one where all the members are perfectly joined together in the same mind, and that mind is the mind of Christ. Now I gave you a homework assignment last evening. I know one of you did it. I don't know about the rest of you. If you were to give a Bible to a village that had never seen one, and they would take that Bible, and they would form a community based on the principles found in that book, What would you find in that community in five years when you returned? Maybe someone has an answer to that question. There could be a a whole list of things. What did you come up with? Mm -hmm. So I found it on Scripture, not other people's values, and that could include uh, culture, traditions. I think that's being included. So yes, very good. And, and, And maybe what are some of those principles? Love, honesty, modesty, modesty, prayer. I think we could add honesty to that list. All right, that's good. Peace of God. Peace of God. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. My mind the fruit of the spirit. Fruits of the spirit. I already gave two of them. Love and peace. What somebody else said something? Anything Power else? To do the will of God. Power. Okay. Anything else? Humility. Humility. Yes. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. No jail. No jail. Yeah, no jail. We could add to that freedom. In a lot of senses. Well, I think we'll stop there. That's very good. Thank you for, for giving that thought. Uh, now, I said one of you did your homework. Brother John, he sent me an email last night called The Village That Lived by the Bible. And it was basically this scenario where someone, a village had been given a Bible by, what, two missionaries, I believe, and very little teaching, but they took the Bible and, and, and formed a community based on the principles. Thank you for that. And... I didn't print it off and bring it for all of you, but if I know John good enough, if you nudged him a little bit, he'd probably either email it to you or else bring a stack of papers next Sunday for each of you. But the one thing that stuck out to me in that, in that paper was it was talking about this community, and it said this. It was a man, I think by the name of Kenna, 
he was one of the leaders, and, and the community had met to discuss some problems in the community. And it said this, Kenna turned quickly to some Bible passage to find the answer. I thought, wow, that's oh to be like that. Uh, that when, there, when, a, when a need arose, when a, when a problem arose, we didn't do what we so quickly do and, and do what we've always done or, or do what dad would have done or, or, or do what was right in our own eyes. But we just take the scripture and we don't open it up and say, well, here's what Jesus said. Here, here's the way Paul addressed this issue in his epistle or, or whatever. Here's an example in the Old Testament we can go to that addresses this issue. And we would form our convictions and we would answer our problems based on the principles of God's Word. And so that list that you gave me, love, peace, fruit of the Spirit, modesty, honesty, prayer, thanksgiving, power, forgiveness, humility, does that describe our community? Do those things describe our church here? I trust that they do. There's three things, at least three things, that the Bible compares the church to. Maybe I'll just quickly open it up and see if you can tell me what these three things are. What three things does the Bible describe, com- compare the church to? A bride, yep. A body. And a building. That's right. Now there's, there's something in each of these comparisons that is very important. So let's take them one at a time. Uh, a bride. What's significant about a bride? Sacrificial love. Yes, that's correct. Um, I'm looking for something else. Every bride has what? Beauty. Uh, no. Uh, yes, but okay. <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble. Um, you can't have a bride without a bridegroom, right? And Christ is the bridegroom. <laughs> okay. A body. What is significant about a body? What? It has parts, has many members, that's correct. What, John? A lot of parts working together. A lot of parts working together. Where's the parts getting the signals? It's head. It's head, that's correct. And what is the head? Christ is the head. So Christ is the bridegroom in the example of the bride. He's the head in the example of the body. And then the building, what's significant about that? The foundation and the cornerstone, yes. Uh, Christ is the foundation, and he's also compared with the cornerstone. A building without a foundation works for a little, but not very, not very long. And we could give examples of that, but it must have a foundation. And Christ is the foundation. And so I would read again the verse from Colossians 1.18 that I read last evening that says this of Jesus, and He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things... Jesus might have the preeminence. And I trust that is our that we believe that regarding the church today. It's not our church. It's not Philip's church or John's church. It's, it's, it's Jesus' church. He is the head. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. We do it His way, by Him, and for Him. And so, may Christ and only Christ be honored, loved, and exalted through His church that He shed His blood for. And now He invites us to be a part of His body. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. First Corinthians 3, 
verse 9, Paul says this, For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that last verse, verse 11, is often the verse we focus on, and we should. For no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But that's not necessarily the emphasis of the passage. The emphasis of the passage is we're labors together with God and take heed how you build on the foundation. And Paul goes on to say, if you build on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone or wood, hay and stubble, your work will be revealed because eventually trials will come. Eventually things will come that you weren't expecting and it's going to try your building. And if you built with the right materials, it will stand. If you didn't, it will crumble. And so Christ is the foundation, but you, me, all of us together take heed how you build on the solid foundation. So that when those fiery trials come, our building will last. Now, I assume that the day that these verses are speaking of, when these fiery trials come, include the judgment. I don't know what all is included, but I think it probably includes the judgment, but I think it's probably more than that. And I would just stick my neck out and say that in the last two years, the church has faced some fiery trials. And it has exposed maybe some of how we've built. And so that's a sobering reality. When these trials came, that none of us could have expected. None of us, we couldn't have had a meeting to, to plan for what was coming. And yet these trials came, and how did our church stand up? So, may we open our eyes and take heed how we build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. So the title this morning, as Philip mentioned, is The Fellowship of Believers. And you can turn back to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking primarily at the end of Acts chapter 2, and also at the end of Acts chapter 4. And what we see in these passages is the way that the early church related together as a body. And we want to draw some principles for us today on how we should relate as a body. And so I've, I've written down the purpose of the message is to learn from the early church how we ought to relate to our fellow believers. I want to read now Acts 2 starting with verse 41. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now I'm going to just stop there. So Peter had said, Repent and be baptized, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So these people were pricked in their heart, and they took Peter serious. They, many of them repented and were baptized, and it says 3,000 souls were added to the church. Now, who were these 3,000 souls? It tells us, or it gives us a little glimpse of who they may have been in Acts 2, verses 8 through 11. And I'm going to read that, thinking about who this body of believers were made up of. Now, now pay attention to, to what I read here. Acts 2, verse 8. This is after the, the disciples, they had received the Holy Spirit and they were speaking in tongues. And then it says this, 
And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judah and in Judea and Cappadocia in Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, these 3,000 people that were converted obviously came out of these groups of people. Now, not only did this church have unity, but they had unity in diversity. People from every nation, they didn't even speak the same language. And we thought we had issues relating with each other. But now let's read on and see how they got along. Acts 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted, to, and parted them to all men as every man had, <clears throat> had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So here we have over 3,000 people who were unified. They were unified in doctrine, they, were, they, they broke bread together. They prayed together. They were together. They had all things common, it says. They cared for each other financially. They met together daily. They were with one accord. They shared meals together. They praised God. And they had a good rapport in the community. Does this sound like a church that you would want to be a part of? This was the manifestation of God's kingdom established by Jesus Christ. And when the world saw it, they wanted it for themselves. Verse 47 says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. A beautiful example of a spirit-filled, unified church that now were communing together as one. They were, they were one body. A beautiful picture. There's a very similar account if you turn over to Acts 4, I'm going to read these verses as well. Acts 4, verse 32. This is just a short time after the verses we just read at the end of Acts 2. We read this. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is, being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, 
having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now what can we learn today from these accounts? I want to make two things clear at the beginning here. Number one, what we read here was not the result of some preacher pounding the pulpit saying you need to be unified. You need to share your possessions. You need to care for each other. That's not why it happened. This was the result of God's grace redeeming these people. This was the the result of these people being born again, being delivered from the power of darkness. They They were transformed like we talked about last night. They were new creatures. And and this is what came out. This is what poured out of these redeemed lives. Second thing I want to say is that I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that we need to operate our church exactly like what we see here in Acts 2 and 4. Now, God forbid that I explain away what we find here so that it matches up with the way we live. That is not my intent as well. But neither am I going to tell you that we need to pattern our church exactly after the accounts here. These accounts are not stated as commands. It's a testimony. But I would call you to consider those of us who have been redeemed, we've been delivered, we've been transformed. Are we a new creature in Christ? And what is our testimony? What flows out of our redemption to our fellow brothers? I do believe that there are principles in these testimonies that are God-honoring and should flow forth out of our lives today as well. And so, I want to look this morning primarily at four things. Number one, there was a mutual passion. And these are all principles that we find here in these accounts of the early church. There was a mutual passion. Verse 42 of Acts 2 says, they continued steadfastly. The NIV says they devoted themselves To what? To the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayers. This this was their passion. This is what they devoted themselves to. They constantly sought to put to practice the teachings of Jesus that was handed down to them by the apostles. They longed to be together with their fellow believers. They broke bread together, probably speaking primarily of communion commemorating Jesus' suffering, commemorating His death, rejoicing in His resurrection. They, this was a passion of their heart. They wanted to do that together. They prayed together. And I can only imagine what the fellowship of these believers must have been like. What do you think they talked about when they got together? Their favorite sport team? The big buck they shot last evening? How much the cows were milking? Maybe. Uh, how good the fish were biting. Now, I don't want to imply that these things are wrong to talk about, okay? I'm not one that says you can never talk about these things. I think it's it's beneficial to talk about life, okay? I think that's good, that, that, that we get to know each other that way. But I don't think it was these things that guided their discussions. Their passion was Christ. It was Christ, only Christ. Christ was the foundation of this church. He was the cornerstone. He was the head. 
He had preeminence in every area of their life. And so together they brought their request to Christ. They commemorated his death and resurrection. And they sought together to take up their cross and follow him. This was the passion of their heart. And the whole body shared this passion. It was a mutual passion. Christ and Christ alone. Number two, they had mutual possessions. They had mutual possessions. Acts 2 verse 44, all that believed were together and had all things common. And then in chapter 4, verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Now again, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that we all need to join a compound and live out of a common purse. Okay, you can, you can rest easy. I'm not going to tell you that. I want to reemphasize what I already said. This was their testimony. What is ours? Now, what is a testimony? The dictionary definition of a testimony is this. It's proof or evidence that something exists or is true. Proof or evidence that something exists or is true. And so I'm going to I'm going to apply this to uh, faith and works. We talk about faith and works sometimes and and sometimes we debate what that means. What what is the works? And how important are they in our salvation? But I believe that what we see here is faith and works. And so we're going to talk about that. Did Noah have faith? He's listed in Hebrews 11. How do we know Noah had faith? Somebody tell me. He built an ark. That's right. That was his works. He believed that it was going to rain. So he built an ark. Noah had faith and his works proved it. Did Abraham have faith? How do we know that? He moved from place to place, yes. And he laid his only son on the altar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, believing, looking for another country. Yes, that's, that's right. All those things that you mentioned are Abraham's works. And it proves that he had faith. We know he had faith because of his works. Now, what we read here in these verses in Acts 2 and 4 was the testimony of these new believers. This was their works. It was the proof or or evidence that what Jesus did in their hearts was real. Jesus had transformed these people and it was real. And those looking on knew it was real because of their works. They didn't just say they loved their brother. They proved it by their works. They didn't just say that God owned everything. They proved it by their works. They didn't just say that they trusted God and the brotherhood to meet their needs. They proved it by their works. And so what is your testimony? What is the proof or the evidence that that what God has done in your life is real? Is there any? Is your faith producing works? Do you love your brother? How do you respond when he has a need? Are you a steward or an owner of the material things that God has given you? 
You don't have to tell me. Just prove it by your works. How do we respond when he takes it away? Do you apply the teachings of Jesus to your financial planning? How did these believers view their possessions? It says, Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now again, I'm not saying exactly how this should look in our life today. But has Jesus done such a work in your life that you are done with materialism? You're done with greed and covetousness. You're done with selfishness. Not mine, but Christ is stamped across everything that you used to hold dear. Everything you own is dedicated to the cause of the kingdom of God. Sometimes we discuss what the New Testament principle of giving is. The Old Testament was 10%. What is it in the New Testament? Some say that it's as the Lord hath prospered thee. Others say it's out of the abundance of your heart. But I believe that Jesus taught His followers to give all. Whosoever He be of you that forsaketh not all that He hath, He cannot be my disciple. And we see this with the way the early church viewed their possessions. When we surrender our life to Christ, we surrender our possessions as well. So whether we're rich or whether we're poor, when we give our life to Christ, we give Him all that we have. Everything we own is for His use, for His glory, for His kingdom. If He has entrusted us, if he has entrusted us with much, are we being faithful with much? If He has entrusted us with little, are we using the little we have for His glory? The third thing that I see, the third principle I see in these verses, is there was a mutual compassion. A mutual compassion. Acts 2, verse 44. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And then Acts 4, verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now here again, these verses can tend to make us uncomfortable because it goes against what we're used to. And and now I have the job of expounding on these verses and applying it to our life. So please, please forgive me. But my challenge is let's not look at this and say, how can we get around it? How can we explain it away? How can we convince ourselves that this was for them and not us? Let's not have that attitude, but rather let's ask ourselves, what does God want of us? How can we apply this principle to our life? The one thing that is clear that I see in these verses is this, that the believers cared more about the well-being of their brothers and sisters and the good of the church than they did about their own personal gain. Can we all agree with that? They believed more about the well-being of their brothers and sisters and the good of the church than they did about their own personal gain. So what is your view of your brother that is in need? 1 John 3.16 says this, 
Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The love of God for sinners, and we all were sinners. And God's love for us was so great that He gave His Son, His only Son, to come and die for me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That was the love of God. It's a debt that we owed that we could never repay. But because of the sacrifice of Christ, that debt has been forgiven. We can stand redeemed before God. And because of this price that was paid for our redemption, we ought to feel compelled to minister to our brother in need. We ought to feel compelled to extend forgiveness, to extend mercy, to extend financial aid, whatever it takes, whatever the need of our brother is, we ought to feel compelled because of what we've been given, because of Jesus. So, 1 John, John says, verse 18, let us not love in word or in tongue. Don't just say you love your brother. Prove it. Prove it by your works. Now, I'm going to stick my neck out here. And I'm going to mention two things that I believe militate against this principle in our day and age. And and this is just my opinion. Um, Take it or leave it. But I believe two things that have militated against this mutual compassion that we see in the early church is government assistance and insurance programs. I just want to share what I mean by that. If a brother is unable to work, where does he turn? Where do we tell him to turn? To the government. And the government will supply his need. If a family has a large medical bill, where do we tell them to turn? To the government. And isn't it a blessing to have a government that dishes out the money and meets out our every need, and I don't have to be like Barnabas and give up my land for the good of my brother? Isn't that a blessing? And yet, what did the world see when they looked at the early church? See how they love each other. Surely they have the love of God in them. Think about how that brother in need how he grew in his love and appreciation for Barnabas when he saw him give up something that was dear to him to help meet his need. And we don't get that blessing when we always turn to the government. When a brother has a catastrophe, what is the first question we ask? Does he have insurance? And as soon as we hear he does, we breathe a sigh of relief because I don't have to fork over my wealth to meet his needs. And if we hear he doesn't, we roll our eyes and think, how irresponsible. Isn't that our attitude so many times? Now, I want to be clear. I have taken government money and I have some insurance. So I'm not saying that these things are sinful and we should go get rid of all of them. I'm just calling us to think about it. What are these things doing to our mutual compassion for our brother? Is it helping it 
or is it hindering it? And if it's hindering it, how can we keep it from doing that? I, I thought of an illustration this morning as I was thinking about this, and I'm just going to tell you who this was. These are people you know, and it blessed me, and I'm going to share it with you. Some of you remember, I don't know, probably, I don't know how long ago it was, but Brother James Selmuth was building some poultry houses. Halfway through this project, storm came through and knocked a bunch of it down. Remember that? Many of you probably remember that. And so a big group of people went back there to help him clean up this mess. And the, the question that was in our minds, many of our minds, mine included, was, is this really James's responsibility or is it the construction companies? They were the ones that should have braced the house up. It's really their problem, right? And so that was kind of in our minds. And so I traveled back to James's that morning with, with another brother. And we were talking about this on the way back there that who's really responsible for this? Are we helping James or are we helping uh, the construction company here? And on our way back, we stopped and we picked up Luke Showalter. And so when he got in the car, we asked him, I, I said, Luke, I said, are we going back to help James or are we going back to help the construction company? And without hesitation, Luke said, we're going back to help James. End of discussion. That was it. And that blessed me. He knew what I was getting at. But that, that was beside the point. We were going back to help James. And I don't know if the construction company benefited financially from us being there or not. But by lunchtime, those houses were pretty much cleaned up. And big group of people, we stopped for lunch, and James got up to, to thank us and to have prayer, and he couldn't hardly talk because of his emotions. And at that moment, I realized that Luke was right. We were there to help James. And it didn't matter who benefited from it. We were there to help James. We are the body of Christ. When one member suffers, every member suffers with it. We have a dear brother in our church who is not able to hold a full-time job because he has Parkinson's. Is that his infirmity or is it our infirmity? Is that his problem or is it our opportunity to reach out and bless that family? And you could apply that to, to situations in your congregation. Is it their problem or is it our opportunity to reach out and show the love of Christ, to be a body that cares for each other. Barnabas, what a blessing. Barnabas cared so deeply about the needs of the body that he was willing to sell his property in order to help meet those needs. Was there any doubt that the love of God was flowing out of Barnabas? I don't think anyone ever doubted that Barnabas loved the body. Number four, there was mutual fellowship. Acts 2, verse 46, And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And the main point that I want to emphasize here is that God's people desired to be together. They got together often. It says daily. They worshipped together. They ate meals together. They prayed with each other. They were one body with many members. They needed each other. They cared about each other. And remember, who, was, who were these people? 
a very diverse group of people, people from every nation, every tongue. And yet they were united by the Spirit of God and they cared for each other and they met each other's needs. And and again, the result of this was that many more people were drawn to the body of Christ. Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now I just want to share this. Last Sunday night, Brother Philip shared some messages at Berea. And I was blessed, and, and I don't think this was just where the ushers put you. I, I don't know. I didn't ask anybody. But I was blessed by the amount of you people here, here at Mabel, that were sitting up towards the front of the auditorium in Berea last Sunday night. That showed me you were supporting him. That showed me you cared about him. You were behind him. And, and again, maybe that was coincidence, but I don't think it was. That's what we need. We need to rally around each other. We need to be there for each other. We need to want to be together. That's what God desires for His body. Now, I know that here at Mabel, you have a vision to reach the lost around you. And that is a blessing. I would commend you for the effort you are putting forth to reach the lost. And I believe that God will reward you for it. But I just want to challenge you that our greatest mission efforts will come to naught if we don't have love one for another. Our loudest and most effective witness to the world is not how we relate to them. It's how we relate to each other. We can have the best mission committee and the best mission programs in place, but if we are not unified as a church, it will all come to naught. It will largely be ineffective. And I just, I just wrote this down, and I, I, don't, I don't say this speaking necessarily to your body here. This is, this is the church as a whole as we see it today. I believe that if we could truly grasp the heart cry of Jesus for His church, we would fall on our knees and repent of our casualness and our indifference and our selfishness and our lack of care and our inability to get along. If we truly understand the heart cry of Jesus for His church, Let them be one as I and my Father are one that the world may know that Thou hast sent me. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said this to His disciples, A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one toward another. The way we fellowship together, the way we care for each other as a body sends a message to the world. What is the world that is watching saying about us? I want to read you a song. My wife's family, well, my wife and a few of her siblings sang this song together and Her brother Benji said several years later, he said, of of all the different songs that they've put out, he said this song is is the one he gets the most requests for, people people contacting him to get the music. This, This is the song he gets the most requests for. It's called this, I Commit My Love to You. It's taken from this 
these verses in John 13, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one toward another. And I just, I have a feeling that whoever wrote this song, I believe it was a lady that wrote it, but at some point she must have read this passage and was struck by the reality of what it's saying. That this is how we show the world that we're his disciples. This is pretty important. Here's what she wrote. If by love we show the world that we are his disciples. So if this verse is really true, if it's true, here's what she says. I can't take it lightly. I commit my love to you. I will tear down all the walls I built with my selfish pride. And I will crucify it. I commit my love to you. So in other words, what she's saying is anything that I may have done to put a wall between us, I tear it down. Because the world's watching. The world, this is how we show the world that we're his disciples. So anything I've done to put up a wall, I tear it down. Then it says this because when we are divided, I can hear him crying, and I can't be a part of breaking his heart anymore. I can't do it anymore. So, brother, I commit my love to you. So she's just said, if I've done anything, I'm going to tear that wall down. Now, the next verse she says, if you've done anything, Here's how I will respond. And if you have offended me, you know you are forgiven. And I will not remember. I commit my love to you. I will see the best in all you do. And I will defend you. When they come against you, I commit my love to you. Oh, that this would be our desire and our prayer. That anything I have done to put up a wall, to hinder us in our relationship, that's going to come down because this is serious stuff. We got to get this right, brothers and sisters. This is how we show the world that we are his disciples. So I'm going to tear that down and I commit my love to you. Anything you've done that's put up a wall, I'm going to forgive you. We're going to let it go. We're going to move on because we show the world that we are his disciples by the love that we have one to another. Do we care that it must grieve the heart of God when we don't get along? So in closing, the fellowship of believers that flowed forth from the body of believers in the book of Acts is a beautiful thing. They shared a mutual passion. They shared mutual possessions. There was a mutual compassion. And they had a mutual fellowship. Now I suspect that our church today in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in 2021, is not going to look exactly like the church in Acts did. But may these same principles and these same values flow forth from our life because of the work that Jesus has done in each of our hearts for the glory of God and for the furtherance of His kingdom.